Welcome to Political Misfits on Radio Sputnik, where we bring you news, politics, and culture without the red and blue treatment. My name is Michelle Witte. I'm here with my co-host, John Kiriakou. We're going to take you against the grain for a couple more hours this Friday, and then we'll all be free. But before that, we do have a a lot to talk about today. We've got a whole bunch of French election and European politics to get into. Um, We are also going to talk about the methods European countries are using not to curtail their purchases of Russian oil and gas, but just to hide them. And we are going to ask what the repercussions could be of of turning a legitimate and relatively transparent market mm-hmm. into a gray area. That's right. I don't know. Seems like maybe there could be. We are going to talk about the fertile ground Ukraine offers for American drone startups, a business opportunity celebrated in the Wall Street Journal today. We're going to talk about the uptick in Cuban migration to the U.S. We are going to talk about both Barack Obama and Hillary Clinton diving more fully into the uh, disinformation finger-wagging industry. Barack Obama gave a big speech at Stanford University about this topic yesterday. He's apparently in the midst of a campaign against it. And I feel like this is sort of tangentially related. The Washington Post this morning had uh, an article about about the tweeting habits of the UK defense ministry. I saw that. It's just sort of like, it's it's pretty ephemeral, but it's just like, hey, UK defense ministry, I guess uh, twice a day, twice a week, I forget what the frequency is, tweets an updated map uh, of battle actions in Ukraine and offers its uh, projections as to where the front lines might move. And so they're like, hey, this is, it's more on the theme of, the radical information sharing, uh, this this tactic that's being undertaken by the UK and US governments. But this paragraph jumped out to me. And oh, I'm sorry. Well, I'll just uh, yeah, I'll tell yeah, you. I want to hear the paragraph. This is the, an expert, uh, Jonathan Isle, who's associate director at this London-based defense think tank. He says the extraordinary thing about this war is how we've dominated the information space right from the beginning. We're doing it to crowd out any propaganda from the Russians. It's 180 degrees difference from how Putin ran rings around us in 1914 uh, when Crimea was annexed. And again, it's just like that. (sighs) You can celebrate that if you have an idea that truth is on one side and lies are on the other. And I just think we all know that it is more complicated than that. Yeah, quite a lot of crowing about dominating the information space and simultaneously hand wringing about like the tiny, tiny tendrils of dissent that still exist. And I'd like to know how in the world he gets that cleared. You know, it it would be so that would never happen here Mm -hmm. because it would be so dangerous to accidentally let something slip out that the other side could use to put together intelligence. Mm -hmm. You mean the maps that the UK Defense Department is tweeting? Yeah. yeah. I don't know. Yeah. Who knows? Who knows? Of course. I mean, look at our last president. Yeah, exactly. And his tweeting Speaking habits. Of, yeah, yeah, exactly. No, I mean, and this is, they've been doing it regularly. Like, they've been doing it like clockwork. So, like, they've decided, this is just an approach that yes. they have decided to take. Yes. Yeah. Uh, a story that we're not going to get to later, but that I wanted to mention, is this Supreme Court decision on... Um, basically on the status of residents of Puerto Rico yes, and whether they should get supplemental social security benefits. And we've been following this case on this show for a couple of years now. Indeed. So these are benefits that provide regular financial assistance for disabled and elderly people in need, right? So this is on top of regular social security payments. Yes. The program is available to people living in the 50 U.S. states 
but not those living in some U.S. territories, but not all of them. Uh, And the argument that is being offered is that people in Puerto Rico uh, do not pay exactly the same taxes that other citizens do. So they shouldn't get these particular benefits. That was the case that the government made and that the court decided they found um, to be compelling. Right. Of course, Puerto Ricans do pay a lot of other taxes. Sure they do. Yeah. And this program is fully funded by the federal government. So it's not like states have to go. Here's our here's our contribution. Could you fork this over for us? And by the by, a Harvard Law Review case study also found that Puerto Rican taxpayers had consistently contributed more to the federal treasury than did taxpayers in six states and the northern Mariana Islands where they do get this supplemental benefit. Yes. So it just sort of. The, the you aren't paying for it argument doesn't really make sense. And the case, it's worth r- recalling some of the details of this case, I think, because they're eye opening. It centers on the case of this man, Jose Baeo Madero, who lived in New York uh, when he began receiving benefits in 2012. He moved to Puerto Rico the next year to care for his wife. Uh, and he continued to receive benefits until 2016 when the government said, hey, you're not allowed to get these when you're on the island. And then the next year sued him. To get $28,000 back that they had given him over over three years, right? And so, of course, this suit began under the Trump administration. The Biden administration on the campaign trail said uh, they weren't going to defend it and that Biden was going to extend these benefits to Puerto Rico. Uh, then when they came into power, he said, oh, no, actually... This should be for Congress to decide. And so this is the reason the Which government is defending. Which the Biden administration. Yes, it has. It really has. Um, also, I want to point out uh, another defense uh, offered by the government is that there is a special program for Puerto Rico that Congress created when it decided to set up this SSI program, but exclude them. And so this program that Puerto Ricans can use is only accessible if you learn earn less than sixty five dollars a month. Oh, my God. So the cutoff for the SSI that other people get is seven hundred and fifty dollars a month. Right. Uh, So if you do qualify for Puerto Rico's program, if you make less than $65 a month, you might get an average benefit of $77 a month, whereas the average SSI benefit is $533 a month. So in any case, we are not talking about huge sums of money. But honestly, for Puerto Ricans, it is really just pennies. And, you know, one of the justifications that the DOJ offered in earlier court battles in a brief from September 2020, really does hinge on exactly how much money you can give to Puerto Ricans before they stop working, which, which is, is a pretty so incredibly insulting. Right. An odious position to take. Uh, but in their brief from 2020, the government wrote that Congress has a legitimate interest in avoiding economic disruption in Puerto Rico, including by maintaining the stability of the labor supply. And Congress could rationally conclude that treating Puerto Rico differently than the states for the purposes of supplemental security income advances that interest. So can't give them the income that they certainly do contribute. You know, they, they contribute to the federal government that funds this more mm-hmm. than some other states. But you can't give them this money because then maybe they're not going to work. Pretty gross. You know, I, I I'm not an attorney, obviously, um, so I don't know what the constitutional interpretations would be. But this just seems so, so bigoted and so wrong. I can't understand it. You know, and well, the thing that pops into my head, too, is the fact that if you compare it, for example, to the state of Kentucky, which pays the least amount of taxes per capita against the most amount of 
federal benefits per capita, because look who their senior senator is. It makes it even that much more unfair mm-hmm. for Puerto Ricans. Mm-hmm. Well, and this is the thing. I, too, am not an attorney. Uh, but it, it, I, a lot of this, a lot of the discussion of, of this case notes that it is rooted in what's called insular cases, insular cases law, insular cases precedent that is a series of Supreme Court opinions issued in the early 1900s that laid the foundation for the understanding mm-hmm. that people who live in our territories are not entitled to full constitutional rights. And a lot of those justifications were very racist such as the territories being, quote, inhabited by alien races who shouldn't be governed according to Anglo-Saxon principles. Uh, I've also seen these insular cases opinions described as decisions that allow the U.S. to treat territories as states for foreign policy purposes, but to treat them as foreign for domestic purposes, which I think, you know, makes it pretty clear. And what is also interesting is uh, Justice Neil Gorsuch agreed with the decision yesterday that found that it was not a violation of the Fifth Amendment to exclude Puerto Rico from this particular um, benefits program. So he said, yes, this is how I have to find legally, but also said, you know, a future case should overturn these insular cases opinions. And then after that, residents of U.S. territories should get the same rights as mainland citizens. But I guess they have to wait for a future case in order to do that more uh, compellingly or robustly. All I right. guess, but you thanks know. for the tip, Neil Gorsuch. Yeah, exactly. I'm kind of surprised, but, but also we, we'll uh, take it. Pity that you couldn't do it. Yeah, you couldn't do it with this case, and pity right. for this guy who has to now pay twenty eight thousand twenty eight thousand measly dollars to yeah. the U.S. government. Okay, cool. Hey, there was a story that popped up in the news uh, yesterday and today about a guy named Brian Colfidge. He's a friend and business partner of Steve Bannon. Yesterday, he pleaded guilty to trying to defraud donors to the Build the Wall initiative. Now, this is the same thing that Bannon was in trouble for, but Bannon got a pardon in the final days of the Trump administration. Yeah. His three uh, co-defendants, they didn't didn't get uh, such friendly treatment. Uh, Colfidge is facing now four and a half years in prison. He took a guilty plea. He admitted that he diverted $350,000 of the $25 million in donations to build the wall and put it in his own pocket. Did they build anything? No, they didn't build anything. Uh, like anything at all? Did no. they even build like a little fence? No, yeah, no, I'm just really nothing, wondering about that. nothing. They raised $25 million. Most of that went into additional fundraising expenses. Yeah, well, look, you got a, a lot of administrative costs yeah. there, you know, yeah. And three fifty went into his pocket. I'm assuming the others all took, you know, money too. Interesting thing about Colfidge, he's going to have a tough time in prison because he's an Iraq war veteran and lost both legs and one arm in combat. So all he has, he sits in a wheelchair and he has one arm. Prison is not going to be an easy experience for him. That's terrible. That's actually, I mean, I don't, you know, I don't think you should defraud people, but that's so sad. Um, And yesterday we told our listeners about CNN Plus uh, going out of business after 23 days. Shortest lived uh, <laughs> television network I've ever I heard honestly, of. How long did Quibi last? Because that is really the comparison here. Do you remember you know, Quibi I never where was they able to actually people... find Quibi? Uh, so it didn't last much more than the 23 days that CNN Plus Who had. I would have thought, yeah, what I really want to do when I'm standing in line is like watch a video. Yeah. Watch a two minute video. I mean, yeah. I guess some people do. I hate it, watching videos. It was a dumb idea. Yeah. yeah, that's why I don't go to MSNBC.com. Not because I don't want to see what they have to say, but you have to watch their videos. 
they force you to watch their videos and I won't do it. I won't. I refuse. You can't make me. No, I can read. I prefer to read. Yep. And don't force your videos on me. Well, CNN itself is in turmoil. CNN Plus was a stupid idea to begin with. I and mean, we said it yeah. when they first launched. Yeah. CNN itself is in turmoil after this, you know, sex scandal. What that what was his name? Jeff Zucker mm-hmm. um, had and he fired Chris Cuomo and then Cuomo sued and then he sued for 20 times what they thought he was going to sue for. And it's just a big mess. Viewership is declining markedly. And so what do they do? You know, we're firing our president. We're firing our our top uh, uh, host. Viewership is off. We should double down and make a second identical network and charge people money for it. So people just weren't having it. Weren't into it. Also, I I also think that just across the board, people a lot of people have probably hit hit the maximum number of subscriptions, small scale subscriptions Mm -hmm. that we want to have. Everybody's paying, for, you know, for some podcast premium content, yes. or for some specialized premium content on their TV. Cable is really expensive. Very Cable's outrageous. Expensive. My housemates and, insist on having like all of it. And we have almost a $300 a month cable it's bill. It's a ridiculous. Lot. And so, yeah, again, OK, it costs $5.99. But like every you, you eventually you just cannot follow every niche that costs $5.99 unless you're, you know, you are a Jeff Zucker. We also have an update on the case of Gonzalo Lira. Yes, thank uh, goodness. The blogger who, yeah, he has report, he has resurfaced, right? He's resurfaced. He says he is alive and fine. Those reports seem to be credible. He says that he was indeed picked up and detained by Ukrainian security services uh, and that he can't say anymore and he can't leave Kharkiv. But, uh, you know, there was a lot of speculation that he might have actually been killed and that doesn't yes, seem to be the case. a lot. We're not going to know, you know, maybe by next week we will have a little bit more he probably wants to smack the person who uh, created the fake Twitter profile in his name. But yeah, he's alive. He's apparently in good health. He's been ordered not to speak. Yeah. But he's also, alive. Um, a little bit more media news. The, the Obamas are not going to renew their Spotify deal. Their ah, production company. Well, did you see that Spotify came out and said, uh, 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 we told the Obamas that we weren't extending yeah. the deal. Good job Spotify. <laughs> yeah, this is a, so according to Bloomberg, yeah, they the higher ground their production company is talking to other distributors about a deal whether or not they were turned down by Spotify. The deal's worth tens of millions of dollars. Yes. All that production company has done is they made the terrible Renegades series of conversations Absolutely between Obama terrible. and Bruce Springsteen. I think maybe Just there were terrible. six episodes of that. Yeah. They they were not good. No. And Two then of they the have, most arrogant people in America talking at each other. And just also, like, I mean, Bob and I talked about this on the show a lot. It's just, honestly, the, the conversation about uh, race and discrimination in the United States is not furthered by listening to two men who really should know better. Uh, expressing surprise that individual racism exists right. like it's not helpful right it's just it's just sort of you know <laughs> wanking is that a word yeah. i'm allowed to say on air in the united states <laughs> I don't it think is it's, on our it's a wank fest um they also have the michelle obama podcast which uh in 2020 was the number one podcast in the u.s but also uh she's made nine episodes yeah of that podcast there hasn't made content since april 2021 and then the last episode was a promo for renegade so again like joe rogan does like what three hours a day every single day millions of dollars for this i guess they must have a lot of big projects coming up 
Uh, I mean, I don't They've believe that for a second. They've got a production second, deal with Netflix. I mean, they're they're all over the place. These the Obamas. Netflix deal, they are at least making. Th- I think they have made like four yeah. products. And right? one of them actually won an Academy Award. Yeah, which I, I mean, understand. whether you like them or not, at least that Netflix, yeah. they're they're producing for Netflix podcasts. Just a million dollars for nine episodes of uh, Michelle Obama. Yes. Yeah. I don't like it. Yeah. Good luck. Good luck on that process. See, right, this is gonna... how they afford a fourteen million dollar house in Nantucket. Yeah. Yeah. This and other things. We're going to take a quick break here and come back to talk a little bit more about Ukraine and also migration from Cuba and a whole bunch of other topics. You're listening to Political Misfits on Radio Sputnik. We are live in D.C. and we'll be right back. to Political Misfits on Radio Sputnik, where we bring you all the latest news, politics, and culture without the red and blue treatment. I'm John Kiriakou, here in the studio with my co-host, Michelle Witte. The latest $800 million military aid package for Ukraine includes money for something called a Phoenix Drone Program. It's a new combat drone designed with Ukraine in mind, that's according to the Pentagon spokesman, that has never been used before anywhere in the world. The U.S. will send Ukraine 121 of these drones in the latest tranche. That Pentagon spokesman said that they are, quote, exactly what Ukrainian what Ukraine needs for the Donbass, unquote. Those were his words. The drone is designed to be used only once, which tells me it's got some kind of explosive on it and you crash it into troops or tanks or whatever. I don't know. got to be just. Really good for the environment. Oh, Maybe a secondary concern right now. That disposable, disposable drones is just what we oh need. Oh, my now. God. Meanwhile, the Biden administration has decided to quietly expand staffing at the U.S. Embassy in Havana, Cuba, and to expand consular services there. That's great, but it does nothing to improve a growing migration problem as an increasing number of Cubans between the ages of 20 and 40 and Cuban women move to the United States. In other news, Colombian President Ivan Duque was in the United States this past week to speak at the U.N. He said that with foreign investment, Colombia is ready to pump more oil to make up for the loss to the market of sanctioned Russian oil. And finally, in the category of that's rich, Michelle mentioned this already, Barack Obama and Hillary Clinton in a speech at Stanford University said that they would take on a new role to stem the flood of disinformation and misinformation on the internet. Isn't that great? We're joined by Arnold August. He's a Montreal-based journalist and author, member of the International Manifesto Group, and the Global Gathering to Support the Resistance Option in Lebanon, contributing editor for the Canada Files, collaborator with Press TV Iran, scholar and all-around good guy. Welcome back, Arnold. Good to have you. It's a pleasure being with, with you both, Michelle and John. How are you? It's been a long Great. time, Arnold. Too long. Well, Too long, right. Let's start with this new drone. Um, for a long time, Arnold, the, the U.S. produced uh, Reaper drones, Predator drones. They're deadly unmanned drones that carry missiles. And they'll circle around a village looking for some bad guy, and then they'll fire a rocket, and then they'll fly back to 
Djibouti or Pakistan or wherever it was that they came from. But now we have these switchblade drones and what we heard today, Phoenix Ghost drones. They're both combat drones, but they're only used once. So what are these things? What are they for exactly? Lots of countries produce drones. Does anybody else have anything like this? Well, there there does not seem to be uh, anything uh, similar in any countries of the world, whether it's in, from Germany or other ma- major European producers of drones. It, it is different. And I think it comes at a, a specific time in the Ukraine-Russian uh, crisis, because at this time, uh, like I follow CNN quite a bit, and it, it's very clear that you have, on the one hand, Zelensky calling for more weapons, more weapons, do more. And who is parroting that plea? It is the CNN that amplifies all his demands, uh, whether it's in different parliaments or in the capital of Ukraine. So he sort, they're sort of playing the, uh, the instrument of the uh, Zelensky uh, attempt to try to escalate the war uh, irrespective of the consequences. Now, on the other hand, the United States, even of course they are the cause of the role, of this role and this crisis, uh, they do not want to have boots on the ground for obvious reasons. And they also do not want to have uh, too much uh, armaments there arms there in Ukraine that would provide, as they would, as they say, a pretext for the for Russia to increase its presence in, in Ukraine. So I guess for them, this is the next, next best thing to not having boots on the ground and have that drone instead. Of course, it was said that the uh, this drone uh, system was made specifically uh, with regards to the Ukrainian uh, crisis, but this is not the case. It has been developed several years before, and you know, as the spokesman said, they would not have been able to have all of those drones, as they say, on the shelf if it was just they were just developed in February 2022. That's but right. But in any case, it's a you know, this is a definite escalation uh, in the war uh, against Russia, and we will see how Russia uh, will respond. But it doesn't look very good. And uh, other countries so far have not criticized it or or not any way said this is a n- not a proper thing to do. I'm talking about the NATO countries, not a, a proper right. thing to do, but because this will just escalate the situation. Arnold, are these um, uh, like kamikaze drones? Is that why they're used only once? Is that what they're supposed to do is, is to crash into things like tanks? Yeah, it's a good question. Like, uh, I'm a, not a, a military expert, but my reading of the situation, they are not kamikaze. It's on the contrary. Those who are sending it or launching it from Ukraine are not at all involved in what happens when it lands somewhere. They're actually unmanned. So if it's safe from the point of view of the Ukrainian uh, armed forces, they will not be harmed by it directly as it goes out and, and bombs certain installations, what what they would say are the installations or, or the, the camps uh, of Russia. But in the long run, yes, it will definitely have a negative influence uh, uh, on the Ukrainian army. I mean, I don't want to make a, 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 a pun, a funny pun about this whole thing, but it will boomerang 
you know, it's kamikaze in the sense, you, yeah. you're right, it's kamikaze in the sense that they're, they're going to have repercussions from Russia and it's not going to look good. Like I just saw uh, interesting footage yesterday uh, on TV in which the Russians uh, said uh, you have to sur uh, surrender now in Mariupol. And the entrenched uh, Nazi-infested army there say, no way, we're not going to do it. And then we saw this, in my view, sorry, this beautiful footage of a Russian ground-to-ground uh, uh, -ground missiles attacking the area where those, uh, the, the Russian, the Nazi-infested army is installed. So, you know, this is going to escalate it, escalate it a lot, and it'll make things even worse for this Zelensky regime and not better. Mm -hmm. Arnold, walk us through relations between the U.S. and Cuba. This is your area of expertise, really. We've often wondered on the show why the Biden administration wasn't seeking to improve relations with Cuba after the Trump administration wrecked those relations. Now we hear about a quiet expansion of the U.S. embassy. But tell us about why Biden hasn't done more for U.S.-Cuban relations. And, and tell us about this immigration and why this is such a problem for Cuba. Okay, here's my take. Uh, during the elections, the recent one, uh, uh, Biden versus um, Trump, uh, we know what uh, Trump's position was on Cuba, more of the same that is cutting back on the uh, Obama opening or the uh, Obama relatively relative thaw with the United States. Obama, uh, sorry, Trump said, well, if, if elected, I will, I will look at the uh, Trump uh, new measures which roll back the Obama opening. Now, he also said, I mean, it's often said that he broke his promise on that. <clears throat> I don't think that is really the case because we have to look at his other, Biden's other statement, whereby he said the following, unlike Trump, like he's, he's a, who was attacking Trump from the right, we, will, we all, all three of us may recall, he said, I am not like Trump. I will stand up against dictators such as Castro. Of course, he forgot Castro's are no longer in power. And Maduro and Daniel Ortega and even mentioned Putin. I will stand up to them. So he actually, contrary to common belief, he actually applied his, faithfully applies his election election promise. That, oh. he, that is what he is doing. I mean, it, it said that, you know, going, why does he go back to the uh, Obama policy? Where, why should he go back to the Obama policy when Obama himself, himself during the entire four-year Trump administration, which ripped to shreds the Obama policy, Obama did not say a word against it. And in the course of the elections, when it was the time, he did go to campaign in various areas of the country, he also did not say, let us go back to my policies, which was which, are, which were very uh, positive, both with regards to the Cubans yeah. and with regards to the United States. So I think there's another aspect one has to take into account. We should not forget, like, how did, um, did uh, Biden come into power? As you recall, you had this, you know, hold this, this liberal, as I call this liberal, anti-Trump, anti-fascist movement, so-called, in the United States. And so the Biden administration uh, enrolled important sections of the anti-Trump Republicans 
into his campaign. They were actually embedded and mm-hmm. took a leadership position in his campaign. So sure. you ha- actually have the Biden administration being a, a light, you know, like you have Coca-Cola diet and Coca-Cola whatever, as a light diet version of the Trump administration with regards to Cuba. So, you know, my view, for I was not surprised when he carried out the same thing. He has to cater to the Republicans in his administration or around his administration who are supporting him. He has to cater to them. And one of the That's ways he point. does that is on the question of Cuba. Yeah. That's a good point, actually. I've read that the problems associated with Cuban migration are that many young, educated Cubans are leaving the country, as are women who historically have been the caregivers in, uh, you know, family caregivers in Cuba. How do the Cubans turn this around, Arnold? It seems like the kind of brain drain that so many other highly educated countries with bad economies have had to deal with over the years. Yeah, that's a very good question. It's it's a bit... uh... Difficult to answer because it's a bit sad. I mean, you know, the issue of immigration or the uh, magnetic attraction, unfortunately, that the United States has for certain sections of the Cuban society, it goes back a long time, even since the 1959 Cuban Revolution. Now, the uh, the main the, the basic feature why so much immigration? Of course, immigrations take place in every country of the world, but in in uh, in Cuba, it is very flagrant. The main feature, and you know, with the risk of uh, reminding people of that famous cliche, but we have to keep on reminding people. It started in 1960 when the United States, through Mallory, the sub, uh, sub undersecretary of state for the hemisphere, said we have to the, the population in Cuba support Castro. We have to impose. Uh, difficulties, economic hardships, in order for the uh, uh, Cuban people uh, to have have misery, the inability to eat, have housing, etc., and turn against the Cuban government as a cause of uh, this this uh, activity and this situation, and not the United States. Now, of course, the Cubans say, and I agree with them, it has not worked all these years. It is true. It has not worked all these years in overturning the Cuban government. That's true. And hats off to the Cuban people. They kept on to a political power in defiance of the most important imperialist power in the world. But it has taken a toll on Cuban society. A certain amount of people are understandably uh, very disappointed with the situation there, where the, whoever they blame it on, and they find it increasingly difficult to go on generation after generation in these difficult conditions. So in the course of writing my, my books on Cuba, I spent over a year and a half living in Cuba. And just, like in, in, one, in one sense, I would say, like, every day in Cuba, living with a family, just to get the meals every day is a major, uh, a major challenge. You know, they have the meals are there. They have, but they have to go and get it. In many cases, they have to line up to get it. Everything is available, but it's a major undertaking for three meals a day. Not to mention other situations which were increasingly difficult, such as migration, uh, such as transportation, as a result of the uh, scarcity uh, of oil, uh, of pet uh, oil, in order to fuel, in order to get the buses running. So, so it has not succeeded in overturning it. But of course, it has succeeded in uh, creating a 
uh, unhappiness or discontent, as Mallory put it in 1960, with regards to the situation. And this is reflected in the uh, speak uh, up uh, in the increase, rapid increase in demands for migration in Cuba. You had a previous one, and the Marielle uh, uh, ma massive uh, uh, immigration, Marielle, uh, 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 over 15 years ago. And this one that is taking place now, especially Cubans going uh, through other. Uh, channels because they cannot get any, any visas in Cuba and landing up either via Nicaragua or Panama or whatever and landing up on that famous Mexican-U.S. border and trying to enter the United States through that border. There, this, this is the, these attempts to get into the United States now desperately has been higher. It has peaked more than in any other previous uh, situations similar, which is uh, such as 1994 uh, a crisis and another one in 1980. Now, Clinton, after the first crisis took place, uh, Clinton, uh, after the 1994 one, he agreed, OK, in negotiations with his uh, Cuban pars, they agreed, OK, we will issue 20,000 visas a year mm -hmm. with with something that Cuba was demanding in order to uh, uh, support the smooth uh, immigration, nonviolent immigration from Cuba directly to the United States. But the United States has cut down on this, especially Trump has cut down on the uh, yearly granting of 20,000 uh, visas per year. And the Biden administration, of course, has, not, has does nothing to alleviate it. So you have this bottleneck. Instead of having these 20,000 people leaving in an ordinary or uh, an orderly legal basis are being forced to go uh, through illegal channels. Mm -hmm. And this is what I guess pushed the United States just a week ago to agree with the Cuban side to have a high level uh, meeting between both sides in Washington, D.C. to find a situation. This took place uh, Thursday. And we still do not ha have all the information as what was actually agreed upon. But hopefully, uh, Biden uh, would uh, will agree to uh, providing the 20,000 visas once again. And also very important, opening once again the consular staff yes. of the United States in Havana, because we ha one has to go through the consular staff in Havana in order to get these visas. That's right. So up till now. Cubans have to go to other countries, which is very costly and requires a lot of dangerous traveling in order to get these visas. So as the current outcome, we have to wait what was actually decided upon last Thursday and what other uh, statements and agreements uh, are being worked on by the uh, by the by both sides. But it's a very ser serious situation. There's no doubt about it. Arnold. Um I, I just shook my head when I read about Barack Obama and Hillary Clinton going to Stanford and saying that they would police the Internet for disinformation. What's all this about? How do they propose policing the Internet? And who's going to be the arbiter of what's true and what's not? It seems to me like this is just going to be uh, yet another attempt to uh, to reduce the avenues of or the channels of information that we have access to. You're absolutely right. I, I read your, your your note to me, and I also had the fair same uh, feeling, like, yikes, Obama. 
And correct me if I'm wrong. I mean, I, my memory is still pretty good, but was not Obama the one who initially, when he ran for office, said he was against the Patriot, Patriot, Patriot Act? Right. He was supposed to be the one to save us from the Patriot Act. And instead, all he did was sign its reauthorization every year. What did he do? He, he adopted it. And he yeah. adopted, you know, he, 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 uh, that continued throughout his his uh, his uh, career his career there as president of the United States. So so with regards to you know Obama, I, I would like to raise another issue that is not always mentioned. Uh, you know uh, you know aside from the, the question of legalities law and of course Assange, he never gave Assange a chance and things like that. But what uh, my feature one of the main features of the Obama rise to power as of president. One mandate, second mandate. It it was a, a nonviolent way by the United States ruling circles to completely eliminate any criticism, especially against U.S. foreign policy. Remember that when Obama was there, he presented himself, oh, he's against the war in Iraq, which mm -hmm. is a lie. Mm -hmm. yep. He only said that he was against the war uh, on in Iraq because. We, it was a stupid war. Why was it stupid? We did not involve other countries. But he would never took a stand against the uh, principal stand against the war of Iraq. So you have, like, I remember very clearly, I was in a New York uh, left forum uh, several years ago, and I had the honor to sit right next to William Bloom, who has since uh, unfortunately passed away. Passed away. And he leaned over to, to me. There was a couple of speakers there in the left forum who were you know, very much apologists of Obama. And he leaned over to me and said, Arnold, the worst thing that ever happened to the left in the United States is Barack Obama. I agree with him. I mean, it's not like a, a law against, uh, against free speech. It's just the whole atmosphere that came along with him being elected, that you, it, it's unthinkable for people in the United States and even elsewhere in Canada, unthinkable to be critical of Obama and ipso facto uncritical against U.S. ongoing wars in the against the peoples of the world. I mean, Obama actually won the Nobel Peace Prize. I guess they were expecting him to uh, carry out even further wars. I think he increased the number of wars uh, uh, carried out by the United States yep. from two to seven. Right. So, so the, this carried out with any without any specific laws aside from the Patriot, any specific laws or sanctions against American citizens who criticize. But it just went along with the overall atmosphere that's been created in the United States through the mass media. And I think this is important uh, to take into account. So we're going going through a, another example of that right now in Ukraine, where it's impossible for any opinion that is in any way critical of the U.S.-NATO-Canada offensive in Ukraine, which provoked this war. You cannot say anything about it. And there's no law, of course. But at the same time, yes, there is. You, you, you know very well, uh, better than I do, all, all of the uh, 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 what's happening with the Twitter accounts you know, of people who speak out against the war, such as um, Ritter, uh, such as... Uh, Escobar and several others, their Twitter account has just been deleted or suspended. Yeah, yeah, right. We have never seen such a a, a very 
hardline stand against a so so-called social media as we see this now with regard with regards to Ukraine. So, you know, Obama making this these great speeches and all that, I think he made two and one to the Atlantic Council, another mm -hmm. more more recently. It is to whether he mentions this these new form of suppression of alternative social media such as Twitter, without mentioning he actually gives credibility to what the US and Twitter are currently carrying out against any voice that questions the U.S. NATO narrative on what is happening in Ukraine at this time. We are going to leave it there. That was the voice of Arnold August. He's a Montreal-based journalist and author and member of the International Manifesto Group and the Global Gathering to Support the Resistance Option. That's in Lebanon. He's contributing editor for the Canada Files and a collaborator with Press TV Iran. You're listening to Political Misfits on Radio Sputnik. We're going to take a short break and come right back. Welcome back to Political Misfits on Radio Sputnik, where we bring you news, politics, and culture without the red and blue treatment. I'm Michelle Witte here with John Kiriakou, diving straight into some European politics and economics questions. And joining us to get into all of them is political and foreign affairs analyst, Dr. Kenneth Surin. He's professor emeritus of literature and professor of religion and critical theory at Duke University. Dr. Surin, thanks for joining us again. Um, you're welcome. Let's start with the French election this weekend. President Emmanuel Macron and his runoff challenger, Marine Le Pen, had their final debate on Wednesday. And uh, Le Pen was not really helped by her performance in their last debate. And so I wonder if you can talk to us about what happened on Wednesday night and who you think uh, came out the winner of that per performance. Um, the opinion polls taken afterwards uh, indicate that Macron was the winner. Um, Le Pen was much improved uh, on her previous performance in 2017. Um, she's assiduously rebranded herself in the interim, um, trying to appear uh, more moderate, more people-friendly, uh, less of a neo-fascist, which, of course, she is. Um, and uh, she had one advantage this time, namely that Macron is the incumbent, and so she had his record uh, to run against. So she did much better, but uh, in the end, uh, Macron prevailed. Um, he's um, extremely lucid, um, is a bit of a data wonk, um, and uh, the one disadvantage that he has is um, sounding professorial uh, and patronizing. Uh, he didn't completely overcome uh, that drawback, um, but it didn't matter in the end. Um, he, he just won. I want to ask you then, you know, I saw a poll saying the anticipated result of the vote on Sunday is Macron taking 55% of the vote and Le Pen 45, which would be much closer than their previous contest. And I wonder if, if that is the outcome, should you interpret 
should we interpret that as a, you know, successful rebranding by Le Pen and her party? Should we interpret this as a, you know, a fumble by Macron? Well, if it is a close race, uh, why? I think the simple reason is this, uh, that um, basically the competition will be between uh, a center-right neoliberal candidate who, of course, for tactical purposes, uh, is veering somewhat to the center. That's Macron, liberal. And the, uh, the neo-fascist, uh, the populist nationalist, um, Le Pen. So there is really no candidate uh, from the center to the left. Um, and people who vote for Macron... Um, are going to have to hold their noses if they're on the left. Um, and since the left itself is divided, I think you know many are going to, to just um, not show up or spoil their, spoil their ballots. Um, so uh, I think that's the, the most obvious, the most obvious reason um, for this narrow gap. The other, I think, reason why um, Le Pen is going to do uh, rather better than she did the last time um, is that uh, her rebranding effort um, has succeeded. There's no, there's no doubt about that. Um, she has not said explicitly that she will take France out of the EU Though Macron, uh, with uh, a lot of facts at his fingertips, pointed out that um, uh, if she implemented uh, the policies that she said she would implement, uh, that would be uh, a de facto withdrawal from the EU. She could not implement those policies um, without leaving the EU. Um, and I think she had no real response to that. Um, and of course, the other advantage that she has is that in this election, there was a candidate, Zamor, who's even further to the right uh, than she is. So that in itself made her appear more moderate. Um, and I think a lot of people were, uh, I think, disarmed uh, this time round by Le Pen. How much impact do you think um, it, these two particular angles on Le Pen have had? One is to uh, sort of associate her with Russia and suggest that she's in the pocket of Russia because her party took financing from a Russian bank. Le Pen says, look, we tried to get financing in France and we were denied. Uh, and the other the other question I have is about this joint op-ed yesterday in Le Monde by the German chancellor, the Spanish prime minister and the Portuguese prime minister. Uh, again, invoking Russia's invasion of Ukraine to suggest that Le Pen should somehow be associated with it and expressing support for Macron. I wonder just how much you think the French public cares uh, about these uh, these uh, particular angles of attack and uh, whether you think they'll have much impact. Or is this really a domestic issues election? Well, it's not purely a domestic uh, uh, issues election. Um, I don't think that in itself, uh, accepting money from a Russian bank and being uh, having photos of her shaking Putin's hand, et cetera, et cetera, 
will matter much. Uh, what will matter uh, a great deal more is the pitch that's being made by uh, Macron, namely that this is a critical time and we just shouldn't rock the boat by uh, uh, putting um, the French leadership in the hands of someone who is basically untried. Um, you know, better the devil you know uh, and all that kind of thing. Um, so I think Macron is saying, look, what matters now, both domestically and internationally, is stability, and I'm your guy for that. Yeah, I mean, that would seem to be a... a well, we'll have to see. We'll see on Monday. It sounds like that could be a winning message. I also want to talk about the European economies. Um, we had Germany's central bank today warning that an embargo on Russian natural gas could cause Germany's economic output to drop as much as 5% and perhaps drive the country into a recession. Germany, of course, is opposed to such a ban and yesterday got support from the U.S. Treasury Secretary, who said a full ban on Russian oil in Europe could do more harm than good. Uh, but I wonder if you can update us on, you know, the state of discussion in Europe and within the EU on how to manage its energy. Uh, I don't think there is a coherent policy that has emerged so far. Um, the uh, the German government is at sixes and sevens on how to deal with this. Uh, Biden has thrown them a lifeline by the gesture that you have just mentioned. And um, I think what that does is to open the door somewhat to uh, f for uh, the Germans to continue importing Russian uh, oil and gas albeit in reduced amounts. And of course, a great deal of hoopla will be made about the reduction in question, though how significant it will be, uh, we have yet to see. Um, so there's no doubt that, uh, that any kind of reduction um, will, uh, will affect the German economy. Um, to what extent, we don't know. Um, because, you know, there could obviously be compensatory moves made by other EU countries. For example, Poland upping its coal output and, um, and allowing Germany to have some of that. Uh, Czechoslovakia is another coal producer. Um, so, no, the Czech Republic, sorry. It's okay. <laughs> My information. Um, so th there will be compensatory moves, um, and so we shall see. Um, will the EU circle the wagons around Germany uh, and assist it with energy resources? I think that will happen, you know, because they will be the, the, the surrounding countries will be paid, uh, one imagines, pretty handsomely for what they sell to Germany. Um, so. No coherent policy emerging so far. Uh, several avenues uh, remain available to uh, the German government. Um, it has not indicated precisely uh, which one of those it will take. And, of course, Biden has uh, opened the door somewhat uh, for Germany. So it's the situation now. I want to ask what seems to be happening in the meantime, because, uh, you know, 
it actually doesn't seem that Europe is buying less oil from Russia, but the opposite. The Wall Street Journal reported today that oil exports from Russian ports bound for European Union member states have actually increased in April. But what seems to be happening is that Russian oil is leaving Russia in tankers, uh, increasingly heading to unknown ports without planned routes. And so what is happening much more often than before this invasion is that Russian oil is being transferred to other ships at sea, where then it can be mixed with oil from other destinations. And so then it's brought home as a blend that doesn't have Russia in the name. And so this is kind of a it seems like face saving, right, for for European countries to still be able to buy Russian oil, uh, but not really call it that. And of course, this practice is something that Iran and Venezuela have been doing for some time to get around their own sanctions. And so I wonder, is is this relatively harmless and, and just a face saving practice or do these efforts to obscure the oil's provenance carry some risks? Like, is it riskier to transfer oil at sea? You know, are there risks inherent with making a, a formerly sort of more um, documented and transparent process, turning it into a gray market or potentially a black market? Well, I'm not an expert on energy policy, but um, uh, obviously there are risks. Um, obviously, uh, the expense is greater. Um but the really interesting question here is, um, where is this stuff, uh, this oil uh, that's mixed at sea, uh, where is it ending up? Um, and who is the purchaser? Um, that, that, I think, is the really significant question. Now, oil, I think, is less important for the German economy. Uh, at least that is the impression I gain from um, reading magazines and journals uh, than natural gas. Um, of course, uh, liquefied natural gas, um, LNG, um, can be transported in a similar way. But uh, I'm not an expert, as I said, uh, and I don't think it can be mixed in the same way that oil can. Um, so I think we need much more information on this to see really... Uh, 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 how much of a risk is involved and who the beneficiaries are um, of this uh, of this practice. It's interesting when we were talking about the German economy that you envisioned a scenario where uh, other other countries would be willing to sell energy to Germany. I was wondering, you know, if you do have a scenario where large countries like Germany uh, maintain their energy relationships with Russia, but smaller ones like uh, Lithuania, for example, or other Baltic states cut off those energy purchases completely and their economies are affected, you know, what what's the discussion within the EU as to how much they should step in and, and support these other smaller economies that have made these decisions uh, unilaterally? Um, well, you know, I, again, I, uh, it's, it's, it's difficult to say. Um, the EU uh, is an unwieldy beast. Um, and I think... Uh, although it purports to be um, a unity, uh, to have common policies, uh, etc., I think there's a considerable amount of leeway um, in uh, the actual imp implementation uh, of energy policy uh, for the individual countries involved. Obviously, uh, countries that uh, belong to the former Soviet bloc uh, are under much more scrutiny. So uh, 
I think really again here the waters are murky. So um, Lithuania, Latvia, uh, Estonia, um, etc., etc. And of course, you mustn't forget uh, the proximity that Finland has. Um, so I think these countries will be allowed much more latitude uh, in securing their energy sources um, than countries that are in the EU but uh, belong uh, more to uh, southern Europe uh, geographically. Um, I think that's as far as we can see. Yeah, I mean, quite a bit of a quite a bit of uncharted territory here to that we are navigating. That was political and foreign affairs analyst Dr. Kenneth Surin. Dr. Surin, thank you so much for being with us. Uh, you're welcome. We're going to take a break in just a second and come back to talk about COVID numbers in the United States and also what is going on with mask policies. Seriously, <laughs> mask policies. Uh, being enacted, being uh, uh, taken down, what the impact of this is. And at this point, is it is it all politics? Is any of it about public health anymore? And then, of course, we are going to talk about uh, politics because it's primary season. And uh, wow, there is all kinds of uh, weird stuff going on in these state level primaries. All right. We're going to get into all of that after this quick break. You're listening to Political Misfits on Radio Sputnik. We're live in D.C. and we'll be right back. Welcome to Political Misfits on Radio Sputnik, where we bring you news, politics, and culture without the red and blue treatment. I'm Michelle Witte here with John Kiriakou, getting into some domestic issues right yes. now. And COVID, COVID is a uh, top among them. It is actually interesting. You know, we had been watching to see if the wave of COVID that hit Europe uh, two months ago now, I think it was, a month or two ago, would be repeated here in the United States. Mm-hmm. And it doesn't seem to be exactly happening. Um, no. The seven-day averages across the country have been going up in April. Yes. But the, you know, compared to the surge that we saw last November. Fall, yes. Um, it is. It is a really minor uptick. And deaths and hospitalizations continue downward, which is yes. really great. Yes. And so, uh, you know, it does look like death hospitalizations and intensive care cases all ticking slightly downward, even though cases are ticking up. I'm going to ask our next guest uh, what she's seeing and whether uh, these national statistics bear out in her practice. We're joined now by Dr. Yolanda Hancock. She's a board certified pediatrician and an obesity medicine specialist. Thanks for being here, Dr. Hancock. Thanks for having me. So does, do these trends uh, ring true to you? Cases going up somewhat, uh, but hospitalizations and deaths still continuing downward? Absolutely. This pattern of behavior in terms of our numbers is no different than what we've seen throughout the pandemic. We're not going to see hospitalizations increase because of this uptick in numbers for the next two to three weeks. And with deaths, we're not going to see an increase until about three to four weeks afterwards. We know that that has been the case throughout this pandemic, and I expect it to be no different 
with this next um, wave of COVID. So you think we should be preparing for increases in, in serious cases, even though this um, subvariant, this Omicron subvariant seems to be milder than all of the previous variants? Absolutely. People underestimated Omicron 1.0, and we saw record-breaking numbers of hospitalizations. If you look in the, at the United Kingdom right now, they have a higher number of hospitalizations due to Omicron 2.0, some of the other sub subvariants of Omicron 2.0, than they had in January back at the peak of the Omicron 1.0 wave. And so I think it's, it's, it's not wise, it is prudent for us to assume that this is going to be no worse than a common cold. What we do know based on each of these variants, particularly um, coming out of this Omicron 1.0 wave, is that hospitalization rates did increase, particularly among pediatric patients. I, I want to ask also, you know, in, in light of this, what do you make of the the way we are testing and treating people in this country right now, or rather the way we aren't, right? Because we have spoken on this show before about funding drying up. And so with it goes free testing in, in many parts of the country. Now you have to pay for it. And if you don't have insurance, well, you're out of luck. And uh, the New York Times today was reporting on the shameful lack of COVID treatments available in the United States, despite promises from the White House that they would be widely available. Um, some of its reporters, you know, detailed the efforts they had to go to to find pharmacies that had these drugs and make the doctor's appointments that they needed to get them uh, prescribed to them. And it sounded like, you know, it was very difficult, took a lot of time and uh, it was just much harder than it seemed to be. So I wonder if you could talk to us about, you know, aside from vaccination programs and testing programs, uh, what kind of treatment can people get? I think you bring up an excellent point, and it's, un it's so unfortunate that as of March 22nd, particularly for the uninsured population, that they no longer are able to get free COVID testing and treatment. It's just disheartening, right? Yeah. We, even for those who have insurance, there's still no guarantee that insurance companies are going to cover the cost. It's between $800 and $1,500, either of these Pfizer or Merck treatments. There have been specific criteria that have been used to uh, define who will be able to access these medications. We know that there have been inequities in terms of which pharmacies have these medications, and particularly within uh, communities of color, it has been far and few between pharmacies are available to have these medications. Um, even in doctor's offices, it has been a challenge to know which pharmacies have it. And what I will tell you is in a few instances where a patient has requested to be started on one of these medications, we don't have the capacity to call five, six, seven, ten pharmacies yeah. to determine which one of them has this medication. It certainly is a block. And it's interesting to me that the Biden administration had this test to treat program and then ran out of money. Mm -hmm. And this vision of having pharmacies test patients and then be able to directly give them the medications, I have not seen that manifested as of yet. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And also, you know, this was raised in the Times. I'm not a doctor. I can't assess how valid it is. But they said, look, if you're, you know, it's not ideal to have a pharmacist uh, assessing a treatment program for a high risk person anyway. It should be a doctor, right? That would be ideal. I want to go back. Sorry. Do you mean to say that insurance agencies might not actually pay for these treatments anyway? Like maybe uh, Care First or whatever is going to decide you're not at risk enough to get one of these treatments? That is surprising to me. Not that not that insurance companies don't do this all the time. Of course they do. But I thought we might still be in a phase where, you know, since testing and treatment was free so recently uh, that they might be too ashamed to start cutting it off this early in the game. 
Insurance companies have no shame. We're still dealing with these issues with Tamiflu, right? The drug for, for flu. We know that Tamiflu works. There is no question as to whether or not Tamiflu works in terms of decreasing the length of symptoms and the severity of symptoms for influenza. But I have patients where their insurance companies have decided that they're not going to cover it. And they wow. pocket $200. That, was, that precedent was already set well before the pandemic. And now, because there are specific diagnostic criteria for us to be able to prescribe um, these medications, insurance companies are following those very strict criteria. And it becomes even more challenging um, when we're trying to prescribe it for someone who I consider needs it, right? I don't necessarily think that they should not be able to receive these medications, even though they may not be 50 and over, having a significant chronic medical condition. It could be that their child has a significant medical condition so that if they end up getting sick, it would put them in the hospital. In order for us to be able to do that, it requires prior authorization and even more paperwork. And again, even once I get the patient to get the prescription, an insurance company may cover it. It's all of the legwork required in determining where is there going to be a pharmacy for this family to be able to pick this prescription up. Yeah. It just reflects the brokenness of our healthcare system that existed before the pandemic. And, you know, clearly I had hoped that we would see changes, but where it feels to me that we're moving backwards. It really does. And I mean, you know, I, I'm not even going to ask a question about this because it comes back to the same cause, but like a, for a lot of COVID treatments still, you have to take them early in the course of disease. But nobody's getting a same-day appointment with their primary care physician, right? It's hard to get a same-day appointment at an urgent care facility sometimes. And so, again, you know, (laughs) this affects how people are treated. It affects the way they're able to access medication. It could affect their outcomes when it comes to this disease. And it comes down to, you know, there's not a lack of product, it seems like. It's just just our healthcare system and the way it's structured. Absolutely. You're absolutely right when you think about one, for those of us who are insured, trying to get in uh, to see a physician or another healthcare provider in order, for, well, let's take it even a step back, getting a test, right? Luckily, now we have home-based testing, and if you can afford it, you can now go out and buy a home-based COVID-19 test. But in order for you to then qualify to get the medication, most healthcare providers require you to get tested in their office. They're not necessarily going to prescribe the medication based on your home-based test. So although we have access to home-based testing, it does not facilitate then them being able to get treated. And to your point about pharmacists assessing patients and prescribing medications, because both of these medications have some significant considerations with the Pfizer medication, you have to consider what other medications this patient may be on, what other health conditions they may have that may create some contraindications for the Merck drug. You have to pay attention to pregnancy status. You have to make sure that the patient is not going to become pregnant because of some of the concerns around teratogenicity. It makes the system so complicated. And then on top of that, the 31 plus million individuals who no longer, who are uninsured, who no longer have access to free testing. Those are the individuals most likely that actually need access to these treatment modalities. But because they cannot access free testing, they cannot afford uh, regular home-based testing purchasing, it further delays their ability to get tested and then to get treated, likely dealing with some comorbid conditions that put them at higher risk for COVID-19 complications and death. Yeah. 
I mean, it's a terrible cascade. I want to ask you about the the following step. Also, I want to ask what you're seeing in terms of, uh, you know, among people that you are seeing. Are you seeing people who now have medium or long term health challenges or disabilities as a result of covid? And, you know, what what support is there for people who are either either just having a really hard time in a really long case of the disease or experiencing lingering symptoms or long covid or other health concerns? Absolutely, both in clinical care and in the data that's currently available, what we are seeing is a significant number of people who are going on to develop long COVID symptoms. Current data says that between 10 to 30% of those who are unvaccinated and get COVID go on to develop long COVID symptoms. That's one in five people, which is insane. And even among those who are vaccinated, there's at least a 0.5% risk of developing long COVID symptoms. What I will tell you in practice is that That is my biggest concern right now, especially with people underestimating the impact of um, Omicron 2.0 and all of its cousins and sisters, Mm -hmm. et cetera, that people forget about the fact, even with a very mild case of COVID-19, you still are at risk for long COVID symptoms. I just saw a patient today dealing with long COVID symptoms. She recovered from COVID back in December. She's still experiencing fatigue and brain fog and being harassed by her employer. Now they're seeing it as an excuse, right? She's a woman of color, which we have to really talk about when people of color are disproportionately impacted by COVID. Mm-hmm. They are also going to be disproportionately impacted by long COVID. Mm-hmm. One is looking at racial demographics in terms of long COVID symptomatology, and then that further impacts them in terms of employment and economics, right? Mm-hmm. Well, a black person showing up who has long COVID symptoms may not necessarily get diagnosed with long COVID because of stigma and institutionalized racism. Mm -hmm. They show up for work and are asking for long-term or short-term disability. They're not going to be considered for it necessarily because of all the historical issues that uh, people of color are dealing with. So we really have to start talking about the economic implications for us in total, for the entire country. What is this going to look like when 10 to 30 percent of the 50% of us or the 40% of us who are not vaccinated go on to develop long COVID symptoms. What is that going to look like in terms of what we call presenteeism, meaning you show up for work, but you cannot work to your full capacity, or absenteeism, they're too fatigued, they can't breathe, their hearts are racing, they are dealing with all these health issues as a result of long COVID. Those are the kinds of conversations that we need to have, especially as judges in Florida are telling us we don't need to have masks on buses, planes, and trains. Yes. Well, that's what I wanted to ask you. But I mean, it is a shame that we can't, you know, every time we have these conversations, right, these sort of public health issues, individual health issues also end up, uh, you know, turning into economic issues and then simply exacerbating the situations that uh, cause the health issues to arise in the first place. And, I, you know, I, I don't want it to be frustrating uh, for, for us or for our listeners, but it does just show like, you know, fundamentally, this this health insurance system we have is not designed to to help people. It's designed to make money for health insurance companies and our economic system also it just isn't designed with the well-being of people in mind. And it becomes very, very clear. Uh, this pandemic has really been uh, a, a, a really good illustration, I think, of all of these forces. But absolutely. On masks, what do you think about the recent mask guidance? Um, I, I'll just list some of the things that have happened over the past week. Federal transportation mask mandate was shut down, uh, struck down in court. Initially, it didn't look like the administration was going to challenge it, but now it will. Philadelphia just this week reinstated and then dropped its indoor mask mandate. And now it's just strongly recommending masks. 
California is doing the same thing, no longer requiring but recommending masks in public, though L.A. in particular is maintaining all of its indoor mask mandates. And I just wonder, you know, from a public health perspective, uh, how useful is this? How pointless is this? How damaging is this? Um, it's incredibly frustrating as, as a physician and a public health professional, especially as we are in what we consider to be in public health, a surge of this particular Omicron 2.0 wave. Mm-hmm. Numbers that, we're, that we are measuring are a significant undercount because it does not take into consideration home-based testing. It is um, speculated that we have likely 10 times more cases than we are actually measuring out based on current data reporting. And when we are in the middle of yet another surge in numbers and simultaneously removing mask mandates, to me, it's just insanity. I don't understand why we're not looking at least at percent positivity rates. If you look at the state of Pennsylvania as an example, our goal is to have less than 5% of our testing being positive right now in Pennsylvania as they're taking these recommendations away, their testing percentage is around 35%. So about 35% of their COVID-19 tests are positive. It does not make sense right now that Pennsylvania would have put it in place and then taken it back. At least have some sort of number, some sort of metric to help us understand how these decisions are being made. And again, I go back to disparities. When you remove mask mandates on buses and trains, We know that the majority of those who are dependent on public transportation are people of color. When we are already disproportionately impacted by COVID, its complications, its deaths, and the loss of our family members, all this does is further compound what we are already experiencing. It makes no sense in the middle of another surge to do this. Like CDC had already anticipated not removing the mask mandate until May 3rd, which is where most epidemiologists have estimated that this surge would start coming down. We were well on our way to improve numbers. We had gotten down to the low 20,000 in terms of our cases. Mm-hmm. We have now doubled that since yesterday. Yeah. Now is not the time. It just it, it boggles my mind that we have clearly learned nothing in the past two-plus years about public health measures to protect the mass population. And not only to your point about the broken healthcare system, I think we as a people collectively are broken. When we cannot consider each other in terms of the wearing of a mask, my heart broke for families who were on planes on Monday when the mask mandate ended. They were on planes with children under the age of five who could not be vaccinated. They made a conscious decision to fly knowing that Every person on that plane was protecting their children. There were families on those planes where children two and under could not wear masks. And they did not. The judge in Florida did not consider them. The airlines did not consider them. And the the passengers on those planes did not consider children under the age of two. It's as if children under five, our seniors, and our immunocompromised, which is 3% of this country, just don't matter. And that's what makes me angry. Yeah, that that uh, stunt on some of those airlines was really, uh, really disheartening. Well, I also want to ask, I mean, you mentioned, you know, the, the you mentioned uh, Philadelphia as an example. But, you know, we, even in Washington, D.C., you know, we've seen goalposts being moved, right? You see we're supposed to hit a certain threshold of, uh, you know, we're drop below a certain threshold for testing. Uh, positive tests and then, oh, okay, it turns out actually that was the wrong threshold. I mean, I can understand, again, in a situation where a disease is new and your your uh, understanding of it is evolving, that you might decide to change certain benchmarks. But, uh, you know, whether or not you agree with that, do you think the communication of why this is happening ha- has been good, has made any sense at all? 
And it's not new, right? We've yeah. been in this game for over two years now. Like, yeah. why can't we figure this out? It is really weird. I mean, unless you have to just say, oh, this is 100% political and not really dependent on public health. So, uh, see you later. <laughs> Run off stage. I mean, that's the only thing that makes any sense. And, I, and I, you're absolutely right. No one, no one has, has the guts to say it, but I think that that's exactly what this is. There are clear metrics that we can use, that epidemiologists have used since the beginning of this pandemic. Be clear, our percent positive is X. At this threshold, you wear a mask. Our daily average case numbers, at least based on um, what we report out to LabCorp and all these other entities, is this. This is your threshold for wearing a mask. Even if you don't have those measures, looking at wastewater, that's another way in which you can measure out the presence of COVID-19 in the community. There are clear data points that can be used to guide what we do and the messaging behind it. Right now, what I hear is save yourself. It's no different than back in March of 2020, where each of us really was left to figuring it out on our own. That's exactly where we are in April of 2022. And it's, it's just ridiculous. And I wonder, you know, what are going to be the, the political implications of this? Because, you know, in March 2020, it was the Trump administration uh, and, and he was b- blamed for a, a lot of the spread of COVID. And I think some of that blame was justified. And I think retrospectively, some of it wasn't because, you know, we, we have seen some differences in the Biden administration, but this sort of act that's put, being put on now is not covering us with glory. And so you have to think, you know, there has long been a strong anti-mask, anti-vaccine push uh, from the right. Um, but I, I don't think haphazardly revoking mask mandates at this late in the game it can possibly be earning Democrats any votes from those people who have been opposed to it for such a long time because, you know, they were opposed to it from the beginning. And so then you also just think, who who are you trying to please? Like, if this is a political move, who are you trying to please? And is it going to do the thing that you want it to do? Right. To me, I'm you know, I certainly am not a political analyst. I don't pretend to be on radio. But for me, it does not make sense, given the fact that most of us who identify as Democrats are likely the ones who want mask mandates to stay in place. When you look at data sources that, you know, ask these kinds of questions, the Kaiser Family Foundation, as an example, it usually falls along party lines. Who's pro-mask? Who's pro-vaccine? You see there being a shift towards the left. So why they would, this late in the game, make these decisions, at least for me, a, you know, a T-shirt-wearing Democrat who proudly shouts her party makes me frustrated to see how collectively this has been managed, even in our most liberal states. It's not clear to me why these decisions are being made. And because we have not been given any explanation to provide a justification for it, it leaves us to draw our own conclusions. And more often than not, that conclusion is going to be linked to politics. Let me ask you one last question. I mean, we on the show, we have talked about the sort of fiasco with COVID funding that played out over the past month with the funding being stripped from a a budget bill. And then, you know, we thought there was going to be a standalone package of $10 billion put together. Then it seems like that was put on hold. And this is, of course, the reason why funding is dried up for so many of these testing and, and medication programs. If there was an injection of, you know, 10 or 15 billion dollars back into the public health system to deal specifically with COVID-19, I mean, that would be far less than the Biden administration originally wanted. And so I wonder, you know, where would you 
where would you do the financial triage first? What do you think, you know, if, if you have to start choosing, uh, where do you think the U.S. should continue to allocate resources at this stage of the pandemic? I would first prioritize communities that have historically and are currently under-resourced in terms of both testing, vaccinations, and not just offering vaccinations, but partnerships with community-based organizations to continue the, uh, the messaging around why vaccinations are needed. The fact that we have now forced booster shots, but still struggle to get almost 40% of our population to get even vaccinated really speaks to the fact that there's a messaging issue and also treatment, right? In order for us to be able to address the disparities that COVID-19 has continuously revealed, we have to put our money where our mouths are. And as much as I appreciate the Biden administration's focus on health equity, part of that is doing just that. It's investing in those communities to make sure that those numbers come down. Absolutely. Yeah. I mean, it is it is uh, just a disaster to watch. I don't know what else to say about it. That was Dr. Yolanda Hancock. Dr. Hancock, thank you so much for joining us. Uh, why don't you tell our listeners where they can find your, your public persona and the work that you do? Absolutely. You can find me on social media at Ask, A-S-K-D-R-Y-O-L-A, Ask Dr. Yola, or on my website at AskDrYola.com. Thanks for joining us again. We're going to take a quick break here now on Political Misfits and come back to talk more dirty, dirty primary politics. All of that coming up here in just a sec. You're listening to Radio Sputnik. We're live in D.C. We'll be right back. Welcome back to Political Misfits on Radio Sputnik, where we bring you news, politics, and culture without the red and blue treatment. I'm John Kiriakou, here with Michelle Witte. It's time for Politics Friday, and there's a lot to tell you. Today, we're going to talk about the Senate races in Ohio and, of all places, Arkansas, an assessment by Politico that the Democrats are going to lose both houses of Congress now. We'll talk about the fake issue of grooming and transphobia that... Republicans are now using in their political uh, messaging. And we'll tell you about the DNC's latest haul of cash. We're joined by Ray Valencia. She's a Sputnik News analyst and the producer of this show. Welcome back. Ray, one of the most contentious Senate races in the country is in Ohio. We told our listeners a couple of weeks ago that the latest Republican uh, Senate debate devolved into a, a fist fight, which is always awesome to watch when you're watching a, a debate for high office in the United States. Since then, Donald Trump has made an endorsement and his candidate has moved from third place to a close second place in the polls. Tell us what's happening in Ohio. So J.D. Vance got the endorsement from yeah, Donald sure Trump, did. right? And he got a little bit of a Trump bump. Uh, more money came in. His friend Peter Thiel, who he works with as a venture mm-hmm. capitalist from San Francisco mm-hmm. before he moved back out to Ohio to run for Senate. Anyway, Peter contributed $3.5 million in ad buys oh, in boy. Ohio. And it's moving Vance up and forward, yeah. right, in the polls. We're really close. Uh, early voting has already started. The primary date is May 3rd. Um Numbers are out in terms of who is voting, uh, and it seems like it's pretty even, right? So we have Democrats and Republicans, ballots requested, 
These are early um, absentee ballots, about 61,000 on both sides. Early, uh, early voting in person, the Republicans are ahead by a couple thousand votes. But it's pretty evened up, mm. so it's going to be really interesting. And I'll tell you, three and a half million from Peter Thiel is mm-hmm. going to go a long way in a state a like way. Ohio. Mm-hmm. They've got they've got not big markets, but, you know, medium big markets in Cleveland, Columbus and Cincinnati, uh, smaller markets in Akron, Canton and Dayton. Uh, we're not talking about having to buy ad space in New York or Washington mm-hmm. or Los Angeles. Right. So three and a half million buys a lot of ad time. And it's going to be a really interesting test because it's the early, you know, Ohio's the first out the gate yeah. for primary season. So a lot of people are looking at how effective are the Trump endorsements going to be yes. in terms of outcome, particularly investors, right? So yes. you got Peter Thiel contributing money. He's going to be watching very closely. Is he going to contribute more money to other Trump endorsees? Um, you got Packs, super packs like Club for Growth, where mm-hmm. are they going to put their money? So I think a lot of people are looking at Ohio for that reason. I think you're right. And I think Donald Trump is looking at Ohio because Donald Trump has made a lot of endorsements in the mm-hmm. last few weeks, and not all of them have gone well. In fact, he endorsed uh, a former staff member for a congressional seat in Tennessee, and the Tennessee Republican Party threw her off the ballot because she doesn't really live in Tennessee and she's not really from Tennessee. She only moved there because she thought it would be easy to win and they didn't want her coming in onto their turf. And so they passed an internal Republican Party rule saying that in order to run for Congress, you have to have lived in Tennessee for a year. She only moved there a few months ago to run for Congress. And so they threw her off the ballot. Well, there you go. Well, tell me a little bit more about uh, J.D. Vance. He, you know, he he became famous uh, with his book, Hillbilly Elegy, that was turned into uh, a very well uh, reviewed movie. And he's got a he's got his first ad out. You know, I love these characters because he's highly educated and he's a venture capitalist and he plays this like, you know, populist, good old boy. boy. And it's, you know, red meat primary season. That means we're going to have ads that I think really appeal to the most conservative of Republicans. And one of the big issues is going to be immigration. And apparently it's a pretty big issue in Ohio, according to Shady Vance. And we're going to roll a commercial that he's running. Yeah, let's do in that. Ohio. Let's listen to that clip. This is J.D. Vance's first post-Trump endorsement Senate ad from the state of Ohio. Are you a racist? Do you hate Mexicans? The media calls us racist for wanting to build Trump's wall. They censor us, but it doesn't change the truth. Joe Biden's open border is killing Ohioans, with more illegal drugs and more Democrat voters pouring into this country. This issue is personal. I nearly lost my mother to the poison coming across our border. No child should grow up an orphan. I'm J.D. Vance, and I approve this message because whatever they call us, we will put America first. Okay, there were like five different lies in that 30 seconds that we just listened it's to. It's so dishonest. It's so dishonest. <laughs> as you say it every 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 five seconds, there's another one. Wow, guys. It's but, wild, yeah, isn't it? But but that that works in Ohio. It works. It does. It works. Listen, both my ex-wives are from Ohio. And my mom was born and raised in Ohio. And I spent much of my life in Ohio. 
I can tell you that works. Oh, yeah. Youngstown's pretty close to Newcastle. It sure is. Yeah. And uh, it's interesting because the Trump endorsements, you know, we're talking about the Senate and the and the Congress. Those are the big, you know, upper ticket. It's the down ballot stuff. Yeah. That's, That's really making more of an impact. Always get killed. We get killed there. But also, Trump's really moving the numbers on those lower ballot races. And the reason why, and they're, they're like uh, Secretary of State and they're yes. uh, judges and AGs. And why are those races so important, John? Those races are important for a couple of different reasons, uh, because, first of all, they're the ones that dictate the local issues. Yes, the rules that are, and how are elections debated. are and conducted. That's right. And how elections are conducted. So this is something that the Democrats have missed out on for many, many years. They didn't pay attention to the state house, the state Senate, the school board, the uh, the register of wills, the the register of voters, the uh, what was the name of the uh, anyway, the local finance. Uh, oh, stuff. it's everything. Supervisor. It, it's the stuff you and don't know the names on the ballot of the people that are running. For these That's things? what I was thinking of. Yeah, yeah. And the Republicans have focused on those issues right. and they have. Um, built up a, a, a deep bench of people at these lower level um, offices who can then run for Congress and mm-hmm. already have some name recognition. Exactly. And by having a Trump endorsement, if you're a no name, now you have now name recognition. Deal. And it's like a voter's guide yeah, for Republicans right. going to the polls. So it's those lower ticket races and the Trump endorsements that I'm really watching right oh, now. Oh, indeed. I, I want to bring up another Senate race. I, I I would never have thought that I would have paid five seconds of attention to the Arkansas Senate race until today when I saw a piece in uh, Politico. Now, Arkansas, like much of the Deep South, has become as ruby red as it could possibly be. Uh, the Republican senator there, John Bozeman, however, appears to be in trouble in this Republican primary. Why is he in trouble? He's in trouble because a so-called journalist, I use air quotes, from the far-right website Gateway Pundit. I'm not going to use his name, but he's frequently on our friend Lee Stranahan's show. Secretly recorded, the good senator, telling someone that he believed, oh my God, Donald Trump lost the 2020 election. The The horror. He actually said this. (laughs) As soon as the Gateway Pundit outed him, he called Trump to apologize. And he didn't apologize, like just apologize. He groveled and he begged for forgiveness. So what did Trump do? He did, he did what, you know, you would expect Donald Trump to do. He endorsed this guy's primary opponent, not mm-hmm. even knowing who the guy is. He's a young nobody, get this, who for one year was on the practice squad of the New England Patriots. The practice squad. Yeah. He never even actually suited up for a game. But the one year that he was on the New England Patriots happened to be the year that they won the Super Bowl. So he got a Super Bowl ring. Oh, what? Oh, man. This <laughs> even though he never actually put a uniform on. <laughs> so Trump endorsed this guy. I don't even remember his name. And now the race, according to Politico, is too close to call. We have no idea what is going to happen in this race, but we wanted to provide it as a heads up. I'm going to stay up on this because it's fascinating to me. John Bozeman, I'm not a a huge John Bozeman fan, but he's one of these 
senators who keeps his head down and and does what his leadership tells him to do. And, you know, he's a reliable, consistent conservative vote. And uh, only because in a in a brief fleeting moment of honesty, he said that Donald Trump, Trump lost, lost the, the election. election. OK, so that's a race to watch. Politico also this week published a state by state and race by race list of predictions. They they did it two ways. They did it in writing and they did it as a podcast. Um, they conclude that the House of Representatives is going to go solidly Republican. We've we've said the same thing. Uh, you know, the Cook political report, uh, Larry Sabato's crystal ball. Uh, they the all historical say historical precedence is overwhelming. And historical precedent. You're exactly right. So there's no surprise. And with gerrymandering and redistricting, there's yeah, no Ohio, surprise. Their map is still undetermined. I mean, they're going on with the primary and then yeah. they're going to have another primary. Yeah, they're going to have to. Yeah. In, in fact, just as an aside, uh, a New York court invalidated the new uh, districts in New York state. So that's going to have to be rewritten in the next couple of weeks as well. So uh, they said that the House is going to go solidly Republican. And in the Senate, where the previous prediction had been that the Democrats would pick up one or two Senate seats. They're now saying that the Republicans are going to pick up two to four Senate seats. Uh, that's that's a landslide in a, in a year like this, where there are literally twice as many Republicans having to defend their Senate seats as there are Democrats. This would be a landslide that has changed because Joe Biden's poll numbers are so pathetic that they are dragging lower ballot candidates down with him. So the Democrats are now looking at winning Pennsylvania with John Fetterman, and I'll get to him in another second. But now they're looking at losing Wisconsin, North Carolina, Nevada, Arizona, and Georgia. So my question to you, Ray, is how do the Democrats turn this around? It's still early. We still have a half a year before the election. Well, I think two things. One is that the candidates are really going to have to try to separate themselves and, well, not so much separate themselves, but really highlight what they're doing for their constituents in their state, right? Mm -hmm. And then the second thing is, like, we've been hearing about the reset happening in the Biden administration, doing stuff that voters want done. No more student loan debt, you know, more yeah. debt relief. Whatever he can do by executive order. Right. Between now and Election Day exactly. to help the uh, Democrats who are running uh, is going to make, you know, hopefully some difference for them in that regard. It's going to be a tough battle. But that's really the only hope is uh, Biden really stepping up and other Democrats, too. I mean, the Democrats have been their own worst enemy with cinema and mansion holding up legislation. So, you know, that is a problem. You know, uh, well, Michelle just sent me something fascinating. Yeah. Uh, and it's it's just in. Florida going wild. Florida, Florida is going wild. wild yeah. It was which reminds me of Girls Gone Wild. That guy got in trouble again this week, too. But that's a whole what different story. All right. Yeah. Well, tell me that one okay. a little bit later. Yeah. <laughs> so here's what happened in Florida or is happening right now in Florida. Democratic legislators, nearly all of them black, staged a sit-down and a protest in the middle of the House floor in Florida. Republicans seated the floor amid the chanting and then flooded back in an hour later. 
House Speaker Chris Sprouls attempted to talk over the protesters and then failing to do so called for a vote on three bills, including the new congressional map, which is what sparked the protest in the first place because it dismantles a seat held by one black Democrat and then dilutes the black vote in another district. The votes occurred in quick succession before and poof, the session was over and they shut the place down. Um, This is not unusual. This is happening not just in Florida, but in Maryland and Georgia and Texas and New York and all over the place where um, where Republicans are controlling the well, they're not in Maryland, but where Republicans control the uh, the uh, power to rewrite or redraw these district district boundaries. Mm -hmm. And what they're doing is they're taking what had been solidly black and democratic districts and they're dividing them and giving them to neighboring districts. It's diluting them, splintering them off. And that's why you have, for example, Texas's 23rd district, which is a Supreme court mandated um, Hispanic majority district. And it's represented by a black Republican and the Hispanics are, you know, out of luck. In the twenty third district, oh, but this is and this Florida is what lost, uh, people and, are and up Florida against. Florida lost a seat, right? Or did they gain a no, seat? No, they gained two they gained seats. A, they gained two seats. Yeah, That's they right. gained two seats. Yeah, so this is yeah this Florida is an with the whole DeSantos problem. and the don't say gay and the Disneyland. Turn, I mean, Florida is interesting right now. Florida is is fascinating right now. Let me let me add something too about uh, about Virginia. So Virginia elected Glenn Youngkin, um, who's, of course, an investment executive uh, as governor. It was a very, very close race. Uh, And frankly, he only won because Biden's poll numbers are so low and Democrats stayed home. But everybody said, well, Youngkin's not a Trump Republican, even though his advertising tried to make him look like a Trump Republican. But he did something that was just really nasty this week. It was unnecessary and it was nasty. There's a tradition in the Virginia legislature that when a member of the legislature sponsors a bill, the identical bill is sponsored by a member of the opposite party in the other house. Okay? This is a way for everybody to get along. Both parties can claim victory. Everyone's happy. It's actually a really nice thing to do. So let's say um, there's a Democrat who wants to rename this post office in the Demo- in the uh, the state assembly. In the state Senate, then a Republican will sponsor the identical bill to rename the same post office. Okay, and it passes, and it passes almost unanimously. Okay, 23 of these bills times two passed last week. And what Youngkin did is he signed all 23 into law that had been sponsored by Republicans and then vetoed all 23 of the Democratic bills. Like, why? What would possess you to do something so mean spirited and so ideological? Unless you're looking ahead to some kind of score sheet that's sort of substance free, but says, you know, where you can say, I passed 57 different laws approved by a Republic. You know what I yeah. mean? If like that's what if you're just 
looking like to increasing improve your, your stats. strike rate, you well, know, in terms of legislation. That's how possible, much certainly. That. But the thing is, is we have term limits uh, in Virginia where if you're the governor, you can only be governor for one term. So the moment you're elected, you're a lame duck. What turns out to be the case, though, is all of a sudden this week, Glenn Youngkin decided to travel to Iowa. Now, why in the world would Glenn Youngkin no, go to don't Iowa? No, tell me, Glenn Youngkin is running for president. <laughs> oh, no. So he's going to be able to tell Republicans, I stood up to those Democrats and I told them I don't want them renaming that post office. And I stood up and I love Donald Trump. Well, that's the thing. They're trying to out-Trump themselves, you know? It's amazing. I guess, but Youngkin didn't really, like, Trump wasn't really a factor in his election. You know, he was no. sort of, he didn't mention no. Trump. He no. didn't court no. his no. endorsement. So I don't know. I mean, I think it will be interesting to see how significant that endorsement really is or that association really is. As yeah. you were saying, it seems to have helped uh, J.D. Vance, who's doing a better job than he was before and managing to overcome his, uh, you know, deep-rooted inauthenticity. That's right. Um, but, you know, it would, that, it would be a change of pace for Youngkin, I think, to suddenly start invoking Trump yes. a whole lot. And I but don't know that there's would... a ton of evidence that it's going to help. Well, I, th- I think that he thinks it would help because, because just about everybody else who would be running in a Republican primary would be doing the same thing. Unless unless he thinks that they would be splitting the, the pro-Trump group. Um, I, I don't know. Yeah. I don't know what his strategy is here. It was just a mean-spirited thing to do. And I saw an interview in the local, uh, like there, there's this micro news uh, site called ArlingtonNow.com. Mm-hmm. And uh, they were interviewing my state senator, um, Adam Eben, who's a good guy, right? He's just a local guy. He's an accountant. He, our legislature is part-time. They only make, but like, $30,000. And he's like, I, I I don't know what to say. I don't know why he did it. It, Everybody was shocked. And so he's spoken to some of the Republicans who said, look, if you guys want to try to override the veto, um, we'll, we'll give you the votes. Wow. Just because it was such a mean thing to do. So we'll see. We mentioned yesterday that a Republican state senator in Michigan had accused a Democratic state senator in a fundraising letter of grooming young children because she didn't want to ban books in schools. This is a Republican theme now. And the issue of grooming uh, children for pedophiles is more and more frequently in the press. Uh, Of course, it's not happening. It's just completely made up. It's made up by the extreme right wing of the Republican Party. I know. I've been looking for stories of Democrats kidnapping children and mutilating them because according to the American conservative magazine, you know, writers there are saying that they're describing uh, Democrats as uh, the party of child mutilators and kidnappers. So I couldn't find any cases of that. That article is saying that that. That Republican candidates are doing it and how ridiculous it is. Oh, it's so ridiculous. Wait, is that what the article is saying? No, or are they saying that this is actually the it's case? It's saying that it's actually the case. Because I write for the them case. and I'm going to quit. Okay. Well, it's saying that, yeah, it's just quoting people that are saying it's the case, right? It's the uh, Christina Pushaw, this is the spokesperson for Florida Governor Ron DeSantis. Right. She right. used the term She's last awful. month to defend the so called Don't Say Gay bill. If you're against the anti grooming bill, she tweeted, 
Right. You are probably a groomer. Yes. Or at least you she don't got in trouble for denounce that. the grooming of four to eight-year-old children. Now, Ron Dreher, who writes at the American Conservative, has in his recent days lobbed the same kind of terminology. So this is something I started hearing about this several years ago, you know, as gay marriage was passed yeah. and stuff like that. And my perception of this is this is primary red meat. Oh, yeah. I mean, Absolutely. definitely primary red meat. But also it's getting legs, I think, because. Conservatives have been very successful with abortion in yeah. rolling back. That's right. Uh, abortion. Roe v. Wade is in trouble. They're and much I think, better at lobbing a, a political grenade into the middle of the room than the Democrats are. Absolutely. And I think now they're so emboldened over Roe v. Wade being rolled back that now they have a new focus. And yes. this can be it. And the greatest this fear. This is so outrageous. It's so outrageous. I just can't but imagine you, that But it think sticks. about this philosophically, though. These are Christian right folks, yeah. right? And Christian. Christian right. air quotes. Yeah. With this whole patriarchy thing. Right. You know, Marjorie Taylor Greene said, hey, I'm, I come from Adam's rib. Right. You know, if you dismantle the idea that Adam gender is not is binary, that sexuality is fluid along a spectrum. Yep. Uh, that creates an existential crisis for a social conservative that's deep in the belief it challenges their whole social construction of reality. And yeah. so they're trying to scare people. And you have a reduced electorate, 36% turnout for the midterms. Yeah. They're, the, you're, they're the most yeah. committed of the party. That's right. You're absolutely and right. And so that's why they're, they're throwing the red meat out there. They're going to talk about groomers. And well, it's going to be interesting to see if they moderate it all during the general election. Yeah. And I'm interested to see what the Democratic reaction is, too, because this is I mean, people are genuinely furious about this. Well, hopefully they'll go out and vote because that's what you should be doing yeah, when you get angry at right. the other party. We um, wanted to also talk about the one bright spot that the Democrats had this week. They took in sixteen point eight million dollars in fundraising in the month of March and more than forty two million dollars in the first three months of the year. That's compared to $30 million they took in for the entire year of 2018. But the most important part of this is that the average donation was 26 bucks. So this is very, very broad. Um, that, that makes it remarkable that they were able to raise $42 million, $26 and at a time. More than, I'm sorry. Oh, no, I was just going to say, I do wonder, I would like to see, I feel like at some point in the relatively recent past, fundraising really began to diverge from um, political success rates. Yes. And so I would, I'm not sure, but yes. I would like to see, I would really like to see some data going, okay, does, does like amassing a big pot actually improve your electoral chances or does it just uh, mm. f fertilize the consulting class at this that point? That is a good question and something that we have to watch. I regret that we're starting to run short on time. So no. first, I want to thank I want to <laughs> thank Ray uh, Valencia for joining us. Ray is a Sputnik News analyst and the producer of this show. And we are going to skip our break and go into news of the weird because it is Friday. And we want to tell you about some of the more oddball stories in the news. There's one that I saved all week. Okay. It was in the Washington Post on Monday. Uh, and it's about a birthday party, mm, an office birthday party, right? We've all had or gone to office birthday parties. Yeah. 
Well, there's a guy who works for Gravity Diagnostics in Kentucky. And he said to his boss, look, I don't want a birthday party. I don't like them. He said, I have anxiety and I just don't like crowds and I don't want anybody to, to celebrate my birthday. His boss said, okay, wink, wink. And then the boss threw this big surprise party for him. The poor guy whose birthday it was had a panic attack, a debilitating panic attack. And um, it caused him to, he says, suffer a loss of income and benefits and emotional distress and mental anxiety. He had to take time off work. He sued the company and he won $450,000 because they threw the birthday party for him after he specifically said not to. Um, it's, he said that it got so bad that when he realized that this party was happening, he fled the office oh, no. and went to his car. He had his lunch in his car and then had a panic attack down in there. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, I think this suit was about a disability discrimination and the the birthday party was was part of that not a hundred percent because of the birthday party uh but yeah i mean i don't know man if someone says they don't want a birthday party just don't throw one and just then for all you people one. who like to say oh no i don't want oh i don't want a party oh i'm going to storm away from this situation and right. look back over your shoulder and see if someone's following you don't do that just be clear, and then nobody has to second guess uh, what you might actually want. You know, I worked with a very, very introverted woman at uh, the CIA. Liked her very much. She was incredibly bright, uh, but she was intensely private. And uh, she went to lunch one day and came back from lunch and whispered to our boss, my husband died over lunch. <laughs> what? Yeah, and she came back to work. And she said, I, uh, I want you to tell everybody but I want you to email everyone and say that I don't want to talk about it and I don't want anybody to express condolences. I mean, I could see that also. I can see that that does happen often with deaths where you say, sure. hey, can you be the messenger? I just sure. don't want to I don't want to answer this question over and over and, and over. Everybody yeah. respected her wishes. Yeah. Everybody. Yeah. Great. CIA, what a great workplace. <laughs> Is that the message yeah. of this story? <laughs> no, no. Hey, I, I subscribe. I've, I'm a longtime subscriber to the Washingtonian magazine, right? especially for the real estate articles. That's why I really, I get like Playboy. it. Right. Kind of yeah, like Playboy. Read the articles. Yeah. Absolutely. Well, I, I noticed in this latest issue of the Washingtonian, um, there was an ad. I, I noticed it because it was kind of odd and here it's made news of the weird. Mm -hmm. According to the Washingtonian magazine, there's a five bedroom house for sale in Fairfax, Virginia. It's listed at $800,000 which is $200,000 less than what all the other houses in the neighborhood are selling for. The ad said that this house would go quickly in a neighborhood where many homes sell for a million or more. It's not in great shape, granted, but the biggest drawback is that there's a strange woman living in the basement and she refuses to leave. <laughs> so what, what it is... <laughs> I love this story because it reminds me of another story I got to tell you. <laughs> what happened was the guy that owns the house had this friend, this woman who yeah. was down on her luck. Yeah. She's in her 60s. And he said, listen, if you want to move into my basement, it's set up as an apartment. 
and you can stay there for a month or two until you get on your feet and you know best of luck she said okay thank you she moved in and never left she's been there for several years now she refuses to pay rent and um there's nothing that the guy can do to get her out well he's ready to retire and downsize and so he's got to sell this house but because she won't leave he had to put a proviso in the in the uh, uh, contract to sell the house that look you you buy the house but this crazy woman comes with it I mean surely it. he can actually evict her from the house and then get a restraining order or something you'd be surprised her. I have a friend who um, a former CIA friend who owned a small house in Arlington and she rented it to the um, Syrian embassy and as soon as the Syrian defense attache moved in um, the embassy refused to pay any rent and he's been in there for two years now <laughs> do you remember the story of Twitter star Yashar Ali and it turned no. out that uh, he was this like Twitter sort of media media guy media analyst media dude but that was his that was his pattern he would like befriend celebrities uh crash at their houses for a while and then say, yeah he did it to kathy griffin she couldn't get him out for a really long time she had to have friends come over and get him out there yeah then he disappeared well to, to close the loop on this believe it or not um the guy already has two offers on the house some some people might enjoy the for some reason there is yeah you might relish a little bit of uh you know exercising some righteous indignation and on behalf of some someone else, you know what I mean? And and trying to evict someone. I could see how <laughs> you might think that would be a fun prospect if you're someone who has $800,000 to drop on a house. And people are a lot nicer than I would be, I'll tell you that. Well, our final story here is in Australia. Queensland's Bill Edgar is known to some as the coffin confessor, right? As such, he shows up at funerals and speaks for the deceased telling off family members that they were they were lousy family members and they were mean and cruel to the deceased when they were alive. This is not like performance art. Like he he will have gotten a script from the person at the time. Okay. Like if you're dying, you say, listen, I want you to go to my funeral and I want you to yell at my Tell kids. Tell my mother I hate her pearls. Exactly. Yeah, okay. My kids were ungrateful brats. Yeah. Um he's not cheap. He charges between $2,000 and $10,000, and he'll do pretty much whatever you want him to do. He'll set friends straight, tell off family members, deliver bad news about will beneficiaries, uh, whatever you want him to. I think that sounds kind of like a fun job. Yeah. Yeah. He's also expanded his offerings um, to uh, removing things from the deceased's Hmm. home. That they would rather their family not see. For example, if you've got sex toys. I was going to say, like all the porn will happen. Yeah, the porn. Yeah. Um, Love letters, hate letters, whatever it is that that the deceased wants him to remove. He says that he removed an entire sex dungeon. Um, from the bedroom of an 88 year old man. Hero. Believe it or not. Hero. That's what I'm going to be looking for when I'm 88. That's great. I love it. I love it. Oh, man. Hey, can More I? Power to He's expanded to the U.S. and the U.K. Well, so. there you go. Yeah. 
Congratulations, buddy. Did we talk about Mike Tyson on the show? Oh, my gosh. Because I want to say there's, briefly. What happened there's been an update the in that case. The, the initial headline was like, Mike Tyson loses it and punches out some dude on I an airplane. I watched that video 20 times. It turns the out. The guy deserved it. Yeah, the guy was being a jerk. He the was? guy was harassing him, was, you know, dancing around, waving his face. I guess he threw, I guess the final straw seems to be that he threw a water bottle. He threw a water bottle and at so him. So the initial, I think the initial reports were uh, Mike Tyson snaps. And beat someone yeah. half to death, but actually, I, I'm with Iron Mike on this. Yeah, this seems like someone, and and you can see the the video of him. Like he looks like this was what he wanted, right? He got what he wanted. He was trying to provoke provoke Mike Tyson into punching him. So and I mean, this is just speculation, him. but that is what it looked. And like. And then after he got punched and he was bleeding just a little bit from a, it looked like a cut from a ring or something. He put his bottom I know, lip out what a d- like he's gonna cry. Punk, punk is I right. Hope somebody else punches him. Hey, we're going to leave it there on a positive note. No, just kidding. That was that was parody. Uh, I want to say thanks to to the production and engineering team here. And on behalf of Ray, John and myself, thanks to all of you for listening. Uh, We will see you on Tuesday next week. We're taking Monday off. Yeah, yeah. But we'll be back next week. So thanks. Thanks for listening.